Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, I'm joined by Cornelius Capfinger, the founder of Intend this week, and, well, we wanted to chat because Intend has been doing a lot of very interesting stuff on the bike component front. First and foremost, making a very wide range of inverted forks from lightweight cross-country options to full-on downhill ones and even a one-and-a-half crown, I guess, fork for a while now, which, you know, you'll see if you're not familiar already, that is. And, well, Cornelius also teases some upcoming stuff from Intend in this episode, and it's just an interesting look into how a very small company has managed to make a bunch of the more complex products that you see on a mountain bike, despite not having the massive number of engineers of some of the bigger folks out there. And Intend has been making everything from forks to rear shocks to brakes and some other odds and ends. And Cornelius just talks about how he goes about it. And, uh, pretty interesting one i think so check it out i hope you enjoy it and with that let's get right to my conversation with cornelius catfinger of intent well cornelius great to sit down and chat with you how are you doing today and where are you today uh hello david uh thanks for the invitation um i'm currently in the bed of my girlfriend <laughs> because uh, it's uh, the uh, darkest room with uh, no noise and any uh, and some other problems um, and it's in the middle of Germany and I'm here for a small kind of vacation uh, because we have a holiday tomorrow in Germany and so I spent the yeah the uh, weekend and now the Monday and Tuesday in kind of a holiday situation and tomorrow there is a real holiday so yeah everything is fine here in Germany and thanks for the invitation yeah looking forward to getting into sort of the history and story of intent a bit here because as we were talking about a little bit off mic before we started just think you are kind of running a pretty interesting company sort of particularly in terms of a smaller component manufacturer that's doing a lot of like a very diverse range of products and making some of the more complex parts on a bike including suspension and brakes and just uh doing things rather differently and so i think it'll make for an interesting little chat here and i guess to start it it would be great to just hear a bit about your background and how and when you founded intent where that all start so basically about me i'm 37 years old i studied mechanical engineering um Back in, I don't know, 10, 12, 50 years ago, I started in, in Vienna, um, in Austria. And uh, I'm bike addict, addicted since, I don't know, I'm 15 years old. <laughs> and when I was 18 or 17, I started to make, I think, and I guess uh, similar to like most of, of the guys out there, to make your own chain guides <laughs> in your garage. <laughs> this was uh, kind of my first... Uh, product I, I did and I sold it to a couple of friends and so and um, then I studied yeah like 10 years uh, for 10 years uh, mechanical engineering and uh, yeah in 2013 I came to Canyon bicycles for an internship and then there 
if you're once in the in the uh, in the branch in the in the companies you're getting from company to company you just need some step the first step is the most important and for me that was with, with uh, Kenyan bicycles and then I met uh, Klaus Liedler from Trickstuff uh, components from the uh, yeah I think famous brains uh, breaks in right now and I was there for one year as an engineer of course and uh, we did some nice breaks together <laughs> and uh, in this time I already started to make my own forks and uh, sold a couple of them like there were some guys in the forum they wanted to to buy this fork I, I made on my own and there was one guy who was asking then there was another guy who was asking for a fork and then there was a third guy asking for a fork and then I had three sold forks and this was uh, the start of intent and uh, out of the three forks there were 10 and out of 10 there were 30 and out of 30 there were 50 and you can guess this is like like seven eight years ago now so right now we are like a grown company and yeah we have a 2017 after this uh, uh after i was uh, employed at trickstuff i'm self-employed with uh, intent right and i'd love to kind of start in a bit on that fork project the initial one because well i guess obviously you had plenty of engineering experience and experience in the bike industry generally but fork is a relatively ambitious design project to tackle as you know well just you at that stage and um so what did that first fork look like and what were your goals for the design and more broadly i guess what you wanted to do differently from what was available on the market at that point um yeah it's what i wanted to do different of course is uh, the upside down stuff because it was like it was not available on the market and um when you take a small look on the motocross there is only upside down and uh, i wrote the money to dorados back in the days i had three four different models of it and i always was I, i'm i'm into this special stuff it's my it's i would more uh, 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 ride uh, like a small custom frame instead of a big uh, manufacturer's frame because I just like this stuff and that's why I also like the upside down stuff because it was rare and um, yeah this um, that's why I wanted to do the upside down and um, with the first fork it was of course upside down single crown this was not in the market uh, and I started with this, with the most outstanding uh, kind of uh, suspension, suspension fork. I mean, yeah, as you said, inverted forks generally are pretty rare in the mountain bike market, single crown ones especially at this stage. And what do you sort of see as being the principal advantages and what drew them to you so much? The benefits of the upside down stuff is of course the lubrication of the bushings and you have a better uh, leverage on the bushings because the bushings are moving down and not stays on the same position as the right side upholds. Uh, you have uh, some advantages of the alignment of the bushings which is also a problem on the normal forks. You have you have the, the ideas of uh, the others with this uh, clamped axle, axle there where you have uh, the width of the of the front hub is 
like independent from the casting. And uh, with the upside down, you don't have these problems because it's just two two tubes together, and there's no uh, clamping in between because there's just one uh, uh, one crown missing or one um, one booster missing. And uh, that's why we have really a lot of advantages of this upside down stuff. And of course, the upside down double crown would be like the next step. It's even better than the normal double crown and it's even better of course any single crown forks but uh, step by step and the single crown is kind of uh, it's the way you do an, a, a, a mountain bike fork at the moment and um, I think with the upside down single crown forks we met our niche and this is our outstanding product uh, and we have a lot of benefits instead uh, compared to a normal right setup fork yeah and certainly that makes good sense of course the things about Bushing and seal lubrication, I think, are pretty well understood. And um, something that I just find interesting with all that, though, that we've had a number of people from various companies on the show, various places, talking kind of about the when you're starting a company and trying to launch a new product like that. There's sort of this tension between, on one hand, wanting to do something that feels very different and that you can kind of differentiate yourself and have an option in the market for people who want the particular thing that you happen to be offering. On the other hand, it can be hard to kind of convince people that something that looks really different from the vast majority of what's out there and works differently from what they're accustomed to is worth taking a risk on. And so, you know, particularly given inverted single crown forks especially being such a rarity at this point how was it sort of getting people on board with the concept and um was it sort of that there was a specific group of people who saw that and were very excited about it or more something that you had to really make a push to convince people made sense uh yeah this is exactly we are the problem in the beginning and still the problem right now <laughs> because of, we have uh, some people who are really into that stuff and they they don't they don't have any fear and they just want to have this nice awesome upside down single crown fork and then there is uh, the vast majority of other people the 99.9 percent .9 of other people they say upside down doesn't work and uh, uh no 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 i wrote it 25 years ago and it was not good uh if we still get this made today hey i'm interested but uh, i had a, a a matsuhi shiva single crown in 2001 or 2000 and it was not so good and uh what's about your fork can you tell me your opinion and i just can answer it's 20 fucking 25 years ago <laughs> there was a ascension diameter of 28 or 30 millimeter and um one uh, uh one and a uh eight inch um uh a zero and not taper and whatever so um we i think after seven or eight years i i would say we we won that fight a bit like we have uh, a lot of we sold so much forks right now for our size of a company we also for only maybe only on in on my instagram but the instagram is is full of intent forks this is in my bubble of course only <laughs> but uh, we can see it everywhere on pink bike on the 
hopefully blister review someday and um yeah it's i think we won that fight a bit but we are still fighting with the same topics and same problems to convince people that it works and what i'm happy about is that for example push uh, suspension came up with the upside down single crown fork some month ago and of course everybody would would think that i think it's a bad thing with their competitors but i really love to see that there are more upside down forks especially of course the money to dorado um the push fork there are some smaller brands there's one in italy the bright suspension and there are a couple of upside down uh, products old also uh, already available and for me it's it's good it's good to see and for our company it will it will be even better because the more upside down forks there are out the more the people will trust this uh, uh this forks and uh, this is i think just the beginning of the succeed of the upside down forks in the mountain biking i think the next five or ten years I think really that every the whole Instagram is full of them. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that trajectory looks like. And I guess the only current modern inverted fork that I've spent any significant amount of time on is the Dorado, uh, which I've ridden a lot. We got a full review up, uh, and it's interesting. Like I, I do think that it is appreciably less stiff in torsion than most of the conventional dual crowns out there, but that that is in many ways far less of a problem than it might sound like, especially because you've got a fork that's very stiff for aft and where you don't have the same kinds of problems with bushings binding and the fork not doing its job as just being a piece of suspension when it's flexed a bit like you can with a uh, conventional fork especially under kind of fore aft flex and um it, it feels different for sure but it does work very well and has some very real advantages and i think yeah people as you sort of said have this perception of inverted forks being very flexy and a lot of that's driven by past experiences with old models that were definitely not stiff but we're also from an era when kind of nothing was and it's all moved forward since then yeah i think um it's one thing is that the forks back in the days were too less stiff maybe and the other is uh, that um it's kind of a pr prediction because uh rumors say upside down forks are too less stiff and I think also the 2001, Mani uh, not Manitou Dorado, but the Shiva S single crown, I think it was not too less stiff. It was just in the head of the people because it was less stiffer than, uh, I don't know, Matsuki set one or whatever. And of course, if you have a review, it's, it's, there's mention that it's less stiff. And uh, of course, you write it and they, you feel it's less stiffer. And that's a bad thing. And if it's not, would not be in the heads and the, and the people, it would not be a bad thing. And um, that's why I think it's not the problem of the product in the 20 years ago. It's just uh, this, it's repeated again and repeated again that upside down forks are too less stiff. And that is not true. <laughs> and we just need to, yeah, fight that, uh, that war like in the next years. Um, to convince more and more people and uh, we have 
yeah, like every week the situation that there is some guy who is writing is that he's interested and he loves the the appearance of the fork, and uh, but he is in fear of the of the torsional stiffness, <laughs> and yeah, after the purchase he says, hey guys, that's absolutely no problem. That fork is writing fantastic, and uh, yeah, then the next week there is a one guy writing, hey. I'm interested, but I'm concerned about the stiffness. And I say, okay, just copy paste the text of the guy from last week. And uh, this is uh, the way we are fighting uh, our uh, our dream. <laughs> did did you ever did you ever ride a upside down fork? Uh, yeah, well, the the Dorado, like I said, um, got lots of time on the Dorado, uh, both the current one and the prior generation one. Um, but I think that's it. For anything that I've spent any significant amount of time on, anyway, um, never really rode a shiver of either variety back in the day. Uh, yeah, so a little bit, but opportunities have been limited of late. There just aren't very many around. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, certainly curious for more options, but haven't yet. And well, we've been talking a lot about the inverted layout of your fork lineup but let's talk about some of the other design details a little bit i mean kind of making a an inverted fork chassis and getting that out in the world is one thing but from let's talk about sort of the where you began with this rather than we'll, we'll work up to the current lineup in a minute but um what were you doing for spring and damper design and those early forks and were you taking on a sort of full clean sheet design of those yourself as well or were you kind of repurposing some stuff from other forks or how did you get started on that front yeah um the uh, air spring and the damping of my first forks like the first really like a zero prototype was uh, i just stole some parts from other forks <laughs> i I don't know. I, I don't know which parts were inside. I think I I I cut down a Dorado or something and put in, put out the rods and pistons and uh, grind it down with some sandpaper. I don't know. I bought a lathe in 2013 and this was the first. I think I already had this lathe for this prototype. So I'm not sure yet. But for the first uh, three forks I sold, uh, I made my own stuff. Of course, I I used the Rockshox uh, rods. 10 millimeter rods from Airspring, of course, <laughs> because they can. I couldn't get this hard anodized stuff for the, the small numbers. And yeah, but I I thought about my own Airspring system. How should I de uh, inflate the chambers, or like uh, how would the, the the pistons look like? This was also on my own design. And um, the basically the the damping of this forks of the first three forks is like an open bath fork, which is self. Um, uh, uh, self bleeding, but with a lowered oil level, which I'm still proud of because it saves around 100 milliliters of oil, and it's just using a simple O-ring um, to close the small bleed hole, and that's why you can have a, like an open bath, but with a normal amount of oil of a normal fork, um, and it saves around 100 milliliters of oil, which means around 80 gram um, or grams of oil, and this kind of uh, damping we still have in our forks now, so there's no change of the of the principle. 
because it since eight years it works perfectly it's self-bleeding there cannot be something damaged and yeah since eight years we are we're proud of <laughs> so yeah basically the first um uh, uh, uh things i put in the fork are still now uh, uh yeah working certainly that sort of the as you described the sort of simplicity of the layout has some very nice advantages for uh serviceability and the like uh how did you go about designing uh the you know valving and actual kind of inner workings of the damper from that stage because it's um you know reasonably well understood the, the principles behind that stuff but still takes good bit to really get something fully dialed in and tuned appropriately and um you know what was kind of your level of knowledge on that front when you started off the project and where do you start doing that design work mm -hmm. um yeah my level of knowledge uh eight or nine years ago was of course i know i knew how it works basically with the shims and the theory uh, the theory behind it uh, but of course i didn't have any practical um, experience with it i didn't have a 10 or 20 years uh, experience with uh, some dinos and uh, some work at a suspension company. I just started from zero, I think. And um, of course, I was uh, 10 years younger. I'm, I was extremely motivated um, in uh, find out these things. And I can remember the first uh, I, I, I made the first uh, the first prototype of this fork and the damping. And I was in the bike park putting out my shims. <laughs> and yeah, I did a, a test run, changed the shims did another test run and yeah that was the whole day of bike park and uh, since from then at that this time I thought yes I have dialed it in perfectly <laughs> because I spent the whole day in the bike park with the, with the shims and the, the parking lot but uh, yeah now 10 years later or I don't know eight years later I, I thought oh my god this was I didn't knew anything <laughs> and um, in 10 years I will think about the time now that I'm I was a young engineer and I didn't know anything. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the basic is you can always learn more and more. And I'm happy to have learned so much the eight, last eight years from the beginning of this uh, shims exchange. Uh, since so, uh, I think two years we have a dyno in our workshop and I'm not the guy who's working with the dyno because we have another guy for it and he is really into it. And so the project is, was growing and right now, we have uh, a lot of uh, comparison forks in the dyno already, the Fox, the EXT and everyone, uh, just to compare our forks to all uh, available new other models. And um, I think it's a bit more professional now instead of eight years before. <laughs> and um, yes, so we, at the moment, of course, in the beginning, the pistons, I just designed a piston like uh, yeah, I, I saw the pistons of other forks and I tried to like copy it a bit. You have some holes and you have the size of the holes are important. In the beginning, we don't even know what to do. And of course, you take uh, the pistons of others and try to do it similar. And um, yeah, since then, I think we changed the piston design three, two, three, four times with uh, some chamfers on it. And um, always, uh, of course, we um, approved it on the dyno, which is is it better or not where do we want to go or or 
or not, because it's not about us always where we want to go. It's also also about the where other others are going. If a fox is making a, a compression uh, force like I say one, you cannot do a compression force like uh, four because uh, it's not uh, not the usual way to do it because people will will not love it because it's not it's too far away from the mainstream. So you always need to think uh, where are the others and where you, where do you want to go? And it's um, yeah, it's not independent. And that's why we are yeah always playing around with this uh, other forks and try to to implement the best. Uh, compromise in our forks. This is how we work now, instead of the one-day bike bike park uh, testing. <laughs> right. Hey, have to start somewhere, but uh, good to evolve and grow and refine things too. And well, kind of to keep going about the intend fork lineup in general. Uh, you've got a fairly extensive series of offerings of you know range of sort of intended uses and corresponding weights and travel ranges and the rest. We don't need to go in super detail on every model, but can you kind of give us the at least overview version of what the lineup looks like and how the different models differ from each other? Mm -hmm. Of course. Uh, I'm happy about this question because the, I can promote our products a bit in detail. Um, and yeah, I just uh, started with the smallest fork, the Samurai. Uh, which is a bit outstanding of the normal forks because it has a slight angle between the steerer and the normal tubes. Um, and this makes it lighter and even a bit like outstanding from the normal forks. And yeah, it starts at 2,500 grams, I think, with the RockShox uh, cartridge. It's a bit uh, funny when we talked about damping and I used the RockShox damping, but it's just, we wanted to start with the project with the lightweight fork and the lockout in the lightweight fork is like, you need to have one and uh, it's to be honest it's not so easy to make a cartridge cartridge with a lockout because you need at least two versions the remote and the non-remote and what people don't know is that it's completely different inside one needs a spring inside to to uh, uh, take back the, the lockout lever and then other one don't need a spring inside so you cannot just put a lever on or not um, so basically i just wanted to start faster with this project and uh, we put in the RockShox cartridge for the white weenies and the lockout uh, guys. And we, of course, have this fork with our own, uh, uh, like downhill cartridge in this fork. It weighs 50 gram more and has no lockout. Um, so this is the Samurai model. And yeah, the next step is the hero fork. Um, like a real hero can do anything. He can go up and down and do whatever he wants. And this bike, uh, this fork is, uh, is around 1,900 gram and goes up to one, uh, uh, 1,170 uh, 1, millimeters of travel. So it's kind of a lightweight enduro fork and it's also e-gravity tested. So you can put it on an e-bike e and go rampage with it. It's no problem also in this weight. And this is the advantage of the, of the upside down, uh, uh, yeah, of the upside down stuff because it's, you cannot damage it. It's on the highest stress point. There's the biggest uh, size of the of the tensions, and this the Hero Fork is the lightest and uh, enduro fork we have. Um, the next one is the Edge. The Edge is like the name is saying. It's between up and, and downhill, like uh, uh, on the edge of uh, up and downhill, <laughs> and it weighs uh, around two thousand one hundred fifty gram, I think. Um, 
and it goes up to 180 millimeters. And um, the internals are the same, like damping and uh, air spring of the hero and edge and flash. The next one is the same. We just uh, it just differs in the in the in the crown, in the stereo tube, in the upper tubes, in the bushings, in the axle. There are quite a few uh, parts which uh, differs a bit to yeah um, to reach the the, the weight we want. Um, the next one is the flash. Like I already said, it's uh, our most yeah it's it will survive the next world war maybe. Um, hopefully it will not uh, take place, but the flash will survive it, and it's uh, around 2,350 gram and up to 190 millimeter. So we have 170, 180, 190 for the models, and um, the difference of these three this single crown forks is not that uh, one is less uh, durable than the other. It's just the stiffness, uh, because all of them are e-gravity tested from a German uh, testing lab called EF uh, EFBE. And uh, this is where we all uh, do our fatigue tests. And so you can also put the lightest fork on the heaviest um, e-bike rider. It's just the stiffness and the style of the mountain biking you want to have. Um, yeah, the Flash was uh, the most heavy single crown fork. And the next one is the so-called banded fork. Um, it started with a, like a limited edition because it was so stand out of the crowd model that I couldn't maybe believe that it has some demand or I don't know and I think it's two years ago or three years and it's I know that day it blew the internet there was a lot uh, there were already memes about this fork <laughs> because it was left and right there was nothing else till now uh, till then till three years ago and uh, it's yeah like in between the downhill fork and the enduro fork it's like for, we have some some guys who want to have the the most special bike in the world and they write an email and want to say hey i want to have this bandit fork and we say okay we can deliver and uh, this is uh, the bandit and uh, yeah then the last fork the most heavy fork is the so-called infinity you can guess the travel is like infinity <laughs> and um until now, we had like a kind of a downhill model up to 215 millimeters of travel. And uh, in a few weeks, we will change that a bit and the infinity will go away from the downhill and will go into the enduro. We just don't make a downhill fork anymore. We just don't, uh, we just do a enduro fork and a real enduro double crown fork. And this is not yet published. It's, uh, we are working on the yeah, press release and on the videos at the moment. But uh, hopefully in a couple of weeks we can um, publish this new Infinity EN for Enduro. And it has a maximum of 190 millimeters of travel, no direct mount of the stem, just a normal Enduro fork for normal Enduro rider. This is, uh, yeah, that's it. Well, that's very intriguing. And this is something that folks who've been listening or reading for a while will probably have come across at some point i've sort of been clamoring for some some kind of more enduro oriented dual crowns to pop up uh kind of all got started when well you know years ago well before the uh kind of latest iteration of heavier duty single crowns popped up things like the 38 and the rock shock zeb and so on before all those were a thing i was running a fox 40 on 
my own personal enduro bike for quite a while just because the yeah the i just wanted something more stout than what really existed in the single crown realm or at that point and now we're talking this is probably starting back in 2016 thereabouts something like that it's been a while but uh so i don't know how much you're willing to share about that infinity en yet but do you have kind of a thought on how much that's going to weigh and what how that sort of splits the difference between the infinity and the other single crowns that you've got yeah the basic difference of course is the the place or the room space we we win with the double crown we have longer 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 inner tubes which means that we have a longer air spring, <laughs> which means we have a longer negative air spring, which means we have a fantastic uh, air spring curve, which is not, yeah, you cannot, you can only uh, achieve it with this longer, longer tube. And that's why you need, of course, uh, uh, a double crown for this. And uh, we exceeded for the new model, we exceeded the lower tubes again by four centimeters compared to the old infinity to have again four centimeters more uh, uh, of a negative uh, it's ridiculously long it's i think the old version was i think 13 14 centimeters long and the next one is 18 or 19 centimeters long the negative it cannot be long enough because the longer the better and uh, with this longer inner tubes we have more bushing distance and in the four in the single crown tubes um the bushings are pressed in from the lower side and the upside down fork. And with the new model, the bushings are pressed in from the top <laughs> because it's a shorter distance <laughs> in this uh, construction. Uh, so we have, instead of like 125 millimeter of bushing distance of a single crown fork, we have like 400 millimeters of bushing distance. And this, of course, leads to less, less, less friction of uh, the bushings. And the big improvement of the upside down double crown fork compared to a normal right side up double crown fork is uh, that the bushing distance can be increased with the double crown. And if you have, if you imagine your old Fox 40 fork from 2016, you have kind of a normal uh, uh, lower casting. And there is only room for 12 centimeters of pushing distance. You cannot increase it. And with the upside down double crown, you can increase it. And that's why all the motocross forks have this upside down double crown and not a right side up double crown because for the bushings, it's the um, best you can do. Yeah, and of course, the third thing of uh, uh, advantage of the upside down fork is uh, the stiffness in the, upper, um, in the upper part. That's basically what we all want to have. Uh, the handlebar is stiffer. You have not the... Yeah, you have more fore-aft stiffness. You have, of course, more torsional stiffness, but uh, the fore-aft stiffness will be a bit more important. And uh, the whole bike is feeling like a downhill bike. And if you ever experience the difference between a good downhill bike and a and kind of a weak enduro bike, you you say, oh my God, it's a fantastic bike. And if you go back to the enduro bike, you say, okay, something is missing, but what's, what's going on? And I think one of the big things is, of course, the tires, but also the double crown fork this is uh, what makes a good downhill bike like a good downhill bike yeah it makes a difference and i think i've said a version of this before but it's not too uncommon for us to hear people saying something like oh well 
my new enduro bike so close to the performance of my downhill bike that I just didn't feel like I needed a downhill bike anymore. And I still feel like most of those people were comparing their new enduro bike to their downhill bike from seven years ago, the last one that they had. And it turns out things have improved on that front too. We've changed some stuff. So, um, granted downhill bike geometry hasn't evolved as dramatically as it has for trail and enduro bikes in the last call it a decade, but still, um, things have progressed a bit. So, um, do you have a target weight for the infinity EN at this point? Do you know what that's going to come in at? Yes, we have already, uh, uh, it's not a target weight. It's uh, the real weight. It's, it depends. We are still discussing about the axle if we put in the light one or the heavy one, <laughs> because uh, with the light one, we would reach 2,490 gram, which is a bit more than the bigger, the, the most uh, uh, heavy uh, single crown forks. Like the Fox 40 is two, uh, Fox, the Fox 38 is around 2,420 grams or something. Depends a bit on the model or how much uh, you cut the steerer, <laughs> but uh, it's like maybe 100 grams difference like ours is a more bit more heavy and i'm working on i worked on hard to go get this number down but um yeah in the end it's uh it's a bit hard to achieve and uh, we wanted to have a a safe fork and not a, a fork with uh, too much uh, wall thickness on the on the upper tubes or whatever so we are still discussing about the uh <laughs> The heavy axle or the light axle and the light one, we achieve 2,490 gram. And with a, a heavier, we would go to 2,520 grams. So I think the people who are buying, they don't care. <laughs> but of course, it would be nice to be, to, to be below the 2,500 grams. Right. Yeah, I mean, not a fork for people who care a ton about that 30 gram difference, but that's still something. And um, But also... Even either way, that's substantially lighter than the kind of typical downhill oriented dual crowns that are out there. You know, those are generally in the at least 2,800 gram range, if not a little more. So, yeah, that's an appreciable weight savings compared to those. And very cool to see that coming out. Um, we, I did also want to circle back to the bandit for a little bit before we um well kind of got sidetracked by the infinity en but uh i mean as you said that is a fork that i mean especially doesn't look like anything else out there kind of given the i don't know if you want to call it a one and a half crown arrangement but um was the principal idea there to sort of open up the extra space for a bigger air spring that you get from having the dual crown length leg on one side while keeping a shorter one on the other side where you didn't necessarily need that space for the damper and save a little bit of weight in the process. Is that a fair summary of the thought process behind that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you're a good engineer. <laughs> um, basically, the idea was to have some space for the negative spring and uh, you don't need this space for the damping because the damping is long enough and it uh, has no benefit from a longer oil um, cartridge because it's not uh, just not necessary uh, the basic idea of the bandit was uh, it came up when uh, Fosbrunk suspension from uh, canada came up with the seekers air, air chamber 
And I thought, yeah, pretty nice, pretty nice. It's an external, external uh, air spring enlargement. And of course, there's no benefit of, of this mechanical tank on the bottom because only the, the, the uh, negative spring is longer. But what if we just put this can on top of the fork <laughs> and make a dual crown fork out of it on this side? And this was basically the idea in, my, in the development um, that we use this 80, 100 gram or whatever to gain more stiffness and uh, more bushing distance and all the benefits out of there, out of it. And yeah, in the end, you can uh, buy a Fox 38 with this uh, four-sprung Seekers. Or you can just take a bandit and be the king of bike park and have a much better fork. Uh, which it does not mean that the Fox or with the Seekers is a bad fork. It improves the Fox 38 even more. But yeah, if you have the same benefits with the even improved double half double crown fork, I think it's uh, like a king of uh, in the development when you have uh, more benefits out of one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly an interesting idea. And as you said, the Seekers is it does work quite well and is a clever bit of engineering to sort of well package what it does into a form factor that can be retrofitted to a fairly wide range of forks but in some ways having the extra can sticking off the back of the fork lowers isn't necessarily ideal and there's some other ways to go about doing similar thoughts too so um yeah it's interesting to hear the thinking there and well we've been talking about forks a lot but uh, certainly not the end of the intent product offering. So kind of haven't gotten the fork range off the ground. Where did you start looking to next as far as expanding the product lineup and what you wanted to make next? I think the next uh, thing after the forks have been the stems. Um, this was, I think, in 2006, 7, 16, 17 where I started to, to make uh, engineering constructions of the, of the stems. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, this, this, the shock came a bit later because uh, it was in the beginning, but it was hard to achieve this dozens of parts of new stuff. But the stem was relatively made easy because it's just one piece and four bolts. And uh, I did some iterations with uh, three part design and then I came up with this one part design. Um, yeah, that was uh, the second product. And the stems are still a strong uh, part of our line because we have four, five, six different models of it in, with different hellbar clamps and whatever. And we are selling it day by day. And it's, yeah, it's not, it's not like uh, the whole company is... Uh, is paid from the stems, but it's just every day and it's always some sales and strong sales and everything is perfect. So it uh, makes fun and the people love the looks of the fork, uh, of the of the, of the the stem, the clean aesthetics. And yeah, I would wish it can go on like this. Yeah, and so then where along the line did you start in on the shock project and where did you end up with that? Tell us more about the hover. Yeah. Uh, the shock, I think, was one of the next following products we started in 2000, or better said, I started in 2017 because in this time I was alone in the company. Um, so, yeah, I think 2017, I started to think about the shock and I like uh, my approach is always 
to have something which the others do not have. But why should I make a coil shock when there are already, I don't know, 30 different coil shocks out there? And if I make a coil shock, I can do whatever with the coil shock. The people will ask, and what does your coil shock, shock makes better than all the others? And the answer would be nothing because it's a coil shock. So my idea was to make, or my general idea is to make product, products which are a bit outstanding to have a unique selling point from the beginning. And I do not need to explain to people what is the unique selling point because they see it immediately. And with the shock, I, I yeah, spent years about thinking, how could I do a good shock or air shock? And then I came up with this, um, yeah, uh, it's like, a, um, it's not parallel design of, of air spring and uh, damping, it's an inline um, uh, 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 damping and air spring that's make, this makes the looks uh, unique and uh, the technique also unique. And yeah, I just used the tubes I had from the forks. That's why it's exactly the same diameter. <laughs> it's a 35 millimeter outer and 20, uh, 32 millimeter inner diameter. And uh, around this, uh, this fork tubes, I built this, uh, the first prototypes of the shock. Yeah, and now seven, six, seven years later, the shock is running. We are selling good and we are happy with this product. And it, we are in iteration number seven, or I don't know, it changes all the, every batch was a slight change. And um, yeah, we had some problems in the beginning with it. We had long, a lot of problems with the shock. And yeah, since a couple of years, it's running very, very good. And the people are excited. And all the guys who are running, not maybe not all, but we had get some uh, uh, reviews from customers. And there were two guys who say uh, they had a coil shock before and they put it out and put the hover in and it is better than their previous coil shock. Uh, that's just the opinion of two guys. So I don't know. But uh, yeah, this makes my day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and tell us just a bit about what uh, is kind of going on with the layout and design of it because as you've noted it looks quite different from well every other air shock that i can think of and what have you tried to do to really make it stand apart apart from the well notable aesthetics what makes uh, the shock stand apart from the others is um, that we have three instead of four dynamic seals <laughs> which uh, no normally you have uh, in the normal uh, air shock you have two air spring uh, seals, the primary seal and the seal which goes to the outside. And then you have two seals, one on the, on the, uh, on the rods of the damping inside and one in the reservoir. So it means four pieces. And with our shock design, we have only three, which is like, of course, you cannot count every friction, but you have just three of instead of four of it makes it makes it 25% better. In average, um, this is uh, the main benefit of the of the shock. And the second benefit is uh, that all the um, the oil is not isolated in the inside of the air shock. It's always on the outside. There's no isolated uh, can, or there's uh, yeah everything is on the outside. And this makes the shock cooler than a compar uh, comparable other air shock. And I was in in Finale Liguria. This is uh, yeah one of the main uh, uh, Europe uh, bike um, destinations and there was a guy with a Fox whatever I think it's like an enduro uh, sh a shock 
and he was I'm around 90 kilogram and he was a 60 kilogram or something um, and his shock was even more warm than mine which was a bit interesting because uh, yeah he was even faster than me <laughs> which means um, he had his shock has less time to uh, to heat up um, or his, the energy was uh, uh, put in the shock was higher um, and yeah this was uh, fantastic to see to to see and uh, experience that my shock was cooler than the other so yeah <laughs> that was uh, my personal my personal win yeah now the note about uh well not having the air can wrapped around the oil in the damper to just allow it to cool off better makes a lot of sense and you know generally that's a limitation of air shocks and you and well yeah especially when you kind of add in the fact that you're just generating more heat with some compression of the air too than you would be with the coil where you're not you don't have sort of secondary uh heat generation happening in addition to what's going on in the damper but uh okay yeah neat um and i mean making a range of forks and a shock would be plenty ambitious enough for a small company but you've uh taken on brakes too so tell us about that and what you kind of wanted to do differently from what's out there and where you ended up with the design to achieve that yeah the brakes are kind of my life story um because maybe what the, most of the guys don't know is that i was an engineer at Trickstuff uh 2016 to 17 and everybody can guess who was uh, the engineer of the of the uh, 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 upper levers of the Trickstuff brakes? That was me. So I had a lot of experience in from this one year of uh, Trickstuff. We started the project, the brake project, before I was employed there. So in reality, I think it was uh, at least two or maybe three years of experience of uh, engineering of brakes. And um, when I left Trickstaff, I started my own company and I wanted to do the suspension stuff and the shock and stems and whatever. But of course, in my inner heart, I, I always wanted to do my own brakes. And uh, there was a long time between 2017 and now um, because we just didn't time to make brakes. There was too much going on with the shock and the forks and to extend the fork range and all the small other parts. And um, after a while, I started the engineering of uh, yeah, my own brake. And then there was time, time came to have all the data finalized and um, making my own thoughts, how to improve the brakes and bleeding was a big, uh, big topic um, because all the brakes out there are have a miserable bleeding. It's not, you need to follow a few steps you need you you are not allowed to do this you are not allowed to do this and uh, be happy with this and at our brakes you just push the oil back uh, 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 through the brake and pull it back one time and it's bleeded that's all and yeah this um this is i think the most benefit of the brakes next to that that the braking lever uh, power is very very high which is kind of normal nowadays but our brakes are even more uh, uh, have even more power than all the Avid codes out there and the most average brakes. 
And yeah, it's a CNC-made brake, which has a nice appearance. We have some hard anodized levers, which are cannot get worn out or the color cannot get uh, worn out. And we try just to do everything a bit better. And um, the success is, is there. We have, uh, I don't know if you're following our Instagram or our, our website. We had the four, first batch of, it's only 50 brakes. It's a small batch. We are a small company still. Uh, but the first batch was sold out in one hour, I think. And the next batch, which was a bit kind of ridiculous, it was 100 breaks, 100 breaks, and it was sold out in four minutes. And this is, um, yeah, what, what was really uh, exciting to see, that people, uh, yeah, bought everything in four minutes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, now the, the, the next batch is, of course, um, coming up and uh, we ordered the parts and they are coming in slowly and then we, we will see uh, how it goes on with the brakes. Maybe in a couple of years we only do brakes, not suspension. <laughs> yeah, we you never know. Yeah, well certainly selling them out that fast sounds like the sort of problem that you like to have. <laughs> yeah, it's really a, it, it's really a problem. It's uh, You make a, 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 a funny verse about it, but it it can be really a problem when you have too much demand and we don't don't take pre-orders we don't want to uh, uh yeah stuck it stuck in lists and pre-orders so it's yes it's a problem everybody wants to have but it is still a small problem <laughs> certainly and i am curious about the ease of bleeding comment that you made kind of early in that what can you tell us about what you've done with the brake design to accomplish that yeah um the brake design of a normal brake is like the following. You have a normal lever uh, on the top of the reservoir and you have um, a primary seal and a secondary seal in the, in the piston on the top. And between these two seals, there's kind of a secondary room or I don't know how to say it in English. Uh, and then you have the reservoir, you have the, uh, uh, the brake hose, and then we have the four uh, pistons of the caliper. And Normally, for example, from Shimano calipers, there's a, you bleed the caliper through both piston sides uh, together. Um, they call it like, I don't know the word for it, there's a marketing word for it, like inline break, uh, bleeding, but it has two sides. And when there are two sides, you maybe have one side a bit, bit more and one bit less. So you cannot really say if it's uh, really bleeded or not. And on uh, the Magura brakes, for example, you just bleed the, the hose and not the caliper itself. And this makes you normally need to bleed the, the caliper, then you bleed the hose, and then the, you bleed the, uh, the, the secondary chamber on the, on the lever. And then you have a lot of chambers which needs to be accurately bleeding, uh, bleeded. And in our brake, you have just one line of oil in the caliper. There is... Uh, yeah, it's just one line. You go through the left front piston, left back piston, then up around the, the, the rotor, then back on about uh, to the right rear piston, and from there to the right front piston, and then you go in the hose. And from the hose, you go through the, the piston in the lever, and from this piston in the lever, you go to the um, reservoir, and from there, you go to the, um, to the, to the bleeding hole. So you have just really one line of oil in the whole brake. And that's, yeah, you just push the oil through and pull it back. Then you have some like w small vacuum and the brake is pleated. 
that's all. It's pretty easy, but nobody did it before like this. Hmm. That's good for us. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so it's it's mostly just about simplifying the flow path and just not leaving pockets that are kind of outside of the main path to allow air to travel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I said, okay, interesting. Um, and when did you start offering the brakes? I know you said you've kind of gone through a couple of batches now, but when did those launch? Uh, we launched the brakes in, uh, I think, March this year, so 2023. Um, yeah, kind of half a year ago, maybe a bit more than half a year. Um, and I think two months ago, we had the second batch. And right now we are kind of working on the next batch. We are the first parts are coming in, descending into anodizing. We are sending it to uh, laser etching and so on. And in I think a couple of weeks we have the next uh, uh, batch here. We also need to assemble it, which takes uh, some time um, because our yeah like manufacturing line is not it's not a, a settled manufacturing line. It's we just need to 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 see how we can uh, assemble it fast and what, what does work, what does not work. So we are still in the process uh, that the product is, uh, like it's finding itself. It's not yet a settled product with uh, thousands of uh, uh, of already assembled brakes. So we are still in the, yeah, we are still finding out how to assemble it fast and safe. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, take, ramping something up like that takes time. And we've kind of been talking quite a bit about a lot of the, specific products that you offer, but would be interested to step back a little bit and just sort of talk about kind of when you're considering adding something new to the lineup or working on a new project, what's the thought process that you have behind identifying something that you think you can do differently and better and what you kind of feel able to take on as far as engineering something new as again you know small company of course you know not all of the time in the world to just design everything all at the same time and so how do you kind of approach those sorts of thoughts my basic idea when i start a new project is uh to have some outstanding idea with uh outs without any outstanding idea which makes the product better than the competitors i don't even start any product maybe some for example, the crank was just an aluminum crank, um, which is an aluminum crank. It's a nice crank, but that's all. But uh, if a crank is a crank, it's a crank. Um, so there was nothing, nothing specific. But uh, on all other projects, like the samurai fork or the, the brakes or the shock, I want to have some special idea. And without this special idea, I don't even start a sketch, nothing. And when I have this idea, like the samurai fork with the small angle of the um, zero tube and the stanchions, which is not new. They already made it in the 90s, but it's uh, new for now, <laughs> which makes it again uh, outstanding. And yeah, then I have this basic idea and I start uh, sketching, make it with paper and the pen, and I sketch the ideas and how to fit it together. And uh, what I like the most, if you have, uh, if you're searching for a benefit, and for example, like we had it with a uh, with a bandit for, uh, fork before. The best you can do is to have one improvement, like the negative air chamber, and you find two other things which can be combined with one benefit. And like uh, the bended fork has one benefit of the large air spring, but 
the brushing distance is improved and the stiffness of the upper part is improved. And when I have, this is my absolute person, uh, personal dream, if you have three benefits out of one, and that's uh, where my, my engineering uh, uh, dream comes true. This, this is how I usually uh, go into the product or uh, into the yeah, projects. Yeah, this is how it works. And from the sketch and the 2D drawing on the, with the pen and the, and the paper, I go to the PC and the computer and uh, make it in 3D. And then it starts from you, of course. Uh, some of the ideas cannot be, uh, uh, cannot be made in reality because it just don't work. But a lot of the ideas, original ideas, will take place in the 3D modeling. And from then it's uh, like a ping pong. You have uh, wall thicknesses, you have uh, the seals need to take place, how to assemble the product. Uh, and this, all these questions need to be um, yeah, thought about in the 3D model. And yeah, this is, this is uh, the, the engineering behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and well, I'm sure you've got some more ideas floating around there, but anything that you're working on or thinking about taking on that you're comfortable sharing right now is a, something that's at least being considered? Yeah, this is uh, a bit uh, comparable to what I started uh, a few minutes before we are now on the on a stage where we already have almost all products done at least once <laughs> we, I, I i just don't know what which product we should we do the as next because frames are we are a component uh, a company and the frames are not a component so i just don't want to go with with the frames and so we i just really don't know what the next <laughs> and i cannot really talk about uh, uh, much because there is uh, not so much new ideas about new products but of course we have some new uh not new products but new stages of the products of the existing products yeah what we can i talk about um in a few weeks we have a very very nice uh small limited series of fork of forks um yeah it's i just say it will call will, will be called the moto but this is all i wanted to say right now it will be i think an awesome product but it will be it's not not good for a series production so it's a limited edition of 10 pieces and it's called moto this is all i want to say right now but i love it i will write it on my own because it's it's a, such a nice fork um and yeah you hopefully can be curious about it well, yeah, that is certainly an intriguing teaser. We'll have to stay tuned for that, but curious to see what that turns into. And, well, Cornelius, this has been fun and just really interesting to kind of hear the story behind Intend and how you've gone about doing what it is that you do. So appreciate you taking the time, and it's been great chatting. Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, thank you for your questions. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it and all the the hearers enjoyed it. Yeah, and I'm happy to hear what's uh, there are some uh, uh, some reviews about the podcast. I'm happy to hear. Yeah, well, well, thanks again, Cornelius. This has been great. Have a nice day. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts. I'd also like to say thanks to Cornelius for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.